Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. You're listening to the Urban Farm Podcast, your partner in the grow your own food revolution. Whether you've just been introduced to urban farming or you're a lifelong advocate, we're sure you'll leave feeling more informed, equipped, and empowered to dig deeper into the soil of your local food economy. With you every step of the way, here's your host, Greg Peterson. Boom, urban farmers. Today, we have a special bonus episode for you. Every month, my friend Jake Mace, the vegan athlete, and I get together for our monthly gardening chat, where we discuss what is going on in our gardens and answer your questions. To dive in, get more information, and send us your questions, visit askjakeandgreg.com. So let's get on with the show. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Greg Peterson coming to you from the Urban Farm, and I am here with Jake Mace, and we are here for our June 2017 gardening chat. Welcome, Jake. Hey, Greg. Thanks for having me back here on your show or our show or what kind of show is this? I like it when we call it our show. Are you kidding? That completely works for me. And I want to encourage everybody out there who's enjoyed our first few months of this segment to share it on all your social media, whether it's email or Facebook or mm-hmm. YouTube or anything you've got and get the word out about gardening at home and our monthly show here. Yeah. Amen to that. Amen to that. So I hear you're out in the garden this afternoon. Yes, especially this time of year in the Phoenix area. It's an intense time for fruit trees and gardening because it's going to be 110 plus degrees outside. Oh, yeah. It's supposed to actually get to 117 next week, I think. Exactly. So, you know, this week I'm trying to prepare everything so everything's hydrated and the pruning is just right so that my microclimates are shaded and the wood chips are in place and everything has got a lot of hydration ready for those temperatures next week. Oh, yeah. Perfect. Perfect. So getting things covered. This is the first year that I've been gardening that I haven't put shade cloth on anything. Ah. Zero shade cloth because this is the first year where I feel that my fruit trees have grown beyond my ability to shade them, which probably means they need to start doing it themselves with their leaves. Yeah. Yep. So even trees like guava and avocado and mango and my bananas and my papayas that are not native to this area are still doing well because they have a lot of other parent trees that are above them creating a shady microclimate. Yeah. 
Say, say a little bit more about that, this whole uh, parent-child relationship or, or canopy trees, would you? Yeah, I've been mentioning that in a lot of my gardening tours and workshops and in my Urban Gardening in Arizona Facebook group. So folks that are planting a new fruit tree, I tell them, don't just plant a peach tree or a citrus tree first. Try to think about what are the biggest and bushiest and fastest growing and vigorous growing trees and plant those first. And they become the parents of the children down below. So in the Phoenix area, I like anything that's native, like Palo Verde or mesquite Mm. or shoestring acacia willow. I also like any kind of mulberry, especially the female fruiting mulberries or the female fruiting caribs. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, we use the moringa trees. The moringa trees we get and we grow those from seed. They're very fast growing. And those trees I just mentioned, they are kind of the parents that take care of the kids. Because if you have a five-year-old child and you kick them out into Manhattan tomorrow, they're probably going <laughs> to die. You know, yeah. And they're probably going to die unless some other adult or some other parent takes them under their wing and protects them. And when you kick out a citrus tree or a stone fruit tree or a you know, um, any kind of fruit tree in your yard, you have to remember that it's a, it's a child. Right. And it needs the shelter of a parent. So plant the vigorous, fast-growing shade trees that also can be edible. Plant those mm-hmm. first and create the microclimate of parents up top and then the children down below. That's especially important here in the desert. Especially, exactly. That's what one of the things. So uh, I have a an associate that I work with here at the Urban Farm occasionally, and he recently came to me and said, "Greg, I, you know, I'm really concerned. Uh, I see a lot of fruit trees in the work that he does. He says I see a lot of fruit trees here in the valley that don't seem to be thriving, and you know, it really sent me down this path of thinking about how do we protect. And I'm not just talking about in Arizona. In Minnesota, it could be for winter time." You know, is how do we put infrastructure in place to make sure that, you know, we shade if it's if you're in a really hot climate, we shade our trees in mm-hmm. the summertime and then in a really cold climate. You know, how do you get them protected there as well? And I'm a believer that it's always better to do it naturally. Instead, than, of, instead of a shade cloth. Yeah, instead of shade cloth. You know, shade cloth is a good uh, interim if you need it, but if you can. You know, as you said, if you can plant out those parent trees and get them growing and then plant underneath them, that's a really important piece of the pie. You know, shade cloth is also good for people that don't have any other option, you know. Right. But here's your option. When you first get to where you want to plant some garden and you want to plant some fruit trees, uh-huh. you got to put those parent trees in first day because they can be growing and creating that top-level canopy of your urban food forest while yeah. you get your house settled. And then when you're ready to plant your, your raised beds or your in-ground beds or you're ready to plant your citrus trees or your, you know, any other fruit trees that, like apple trees that need help, those vigorous parent trees have already been planted. They're already growing and they can help to create that microclimate of shade and of windbreak. Um, oh, a lot yes. of people lose their trees to wind yep. as well as heat. So I think it's something very simple, but those parent trees are super important to plant first, and especially, like we talked about before, Greg, plant them around the perimeter of your yard. Yes. Like the outer circumference of your yard. That way your entire yard has got, like, a moat of parent trees to <laughs> help to keep the insides nice and protected. Yeah. 
Exactly. Exactly. Well, great. So we have a bunch of great questions that came in from all over the country. And so I'm going to just jump in and get started. This is from Dan. Dan says, my question has to do with mulching and wood chips. Have you guys ever noticed any negative effects from putting mulch and or wood chips down over your gardens? Nitrogen leaching, unwanted bugs, etc. Also, does it make any difference what you use for your mulch? So what kind of mulch you use? Thoughts on that? Yeah, I've heard a lot of questions like this. One question is, can we use oleander? Can we use eucalyptus in our wood chips? Yeah. If those, if oleander or eucalyptus was chopped up and I say, absolutely, you know, I would say if you're using, you know, four or five feet of only eucalyptus and only Mm -hmm. oleander, you know, but the problem is that when your wood chips come in, it's a potpourri of all different kinds of trees and shrubs and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, well, that's not really a problem. That's actually a good thing. The potpourri. Yeah. Totally. Absolutely. You get a nice biodiverse wood chips. And so the the more biodiverse, the better. So have you seen any uh, negative effects of putting wood chips down? Yes. So people sometimes ask, you know, does it bring in scorpions? I have not yeah. found this. I, I do not think it brings in scorpions. Mm-hmm. Uh, people ask, does it bring in termites? I have not found this to be true. I don't right. have any, I mean, like, I have never seen any evidence of termites in my yard. I have more wood chips, you know, <laughs> fortunately than anybody in my neighborhood. Yeah. I do notice that when I first spread a new layer of wood chips let's say i put like one foot of new wood chips on top uh-huh. i've already spread over 55 landscape truckloads of wood chips and each truckload has four or five tons of wood chips so i'm right i've already got two or three feet of wood chips everywhere in my entire property but the first week or two i spread that new layer i do notice that there are some flies that like the smell of freshly oh, yes. chipped trees yeah so i tell you if you have a event coming up Spread your wood chips after the event or like a month before the event. Right, um, exactly. You will notice a few flies like newly spread wood chips, but then after they cook out, the flies go away. Yeah. I was just going to say, I also, with lots of wood chips here, I have seen the flies. They show up occasionally, but I really haven't seen anything other, any other detrimental or anything negative. And here's the thing. When I go to like other parts of my city, my city's called Tempe. It's a suburb of Phoenix. When I go to any other part of Tempe, even if it's miles and miles away, everyone's got flies. Right, exactly. So it's not necessarily my yard, but they do like to kind of eat the wood chips. But hey, they're helping to break the wood chips down. Those flies are helping to pollinate my fruit trees, flowers. So there are a lot of benefits to flies too. And I just think that the benefits, the list of pros for putting wood chips down is so long. Oh, yeah. With conserving water, as they break down, they turn into amazing soil. Oh, I also noticed that the caller, Dan, Dan asked about, does it leach uh, nitrogen? Yes. Well, keep in mind that I'm putting wood chips on top of the soil, not inside the soil. Right. Really important, important distinction. Right. And, but I do think that I've put so many wood chips on my yard in such a short amount of time, like five to seven years, I've put so many wood chips on the ground. Yeah. That, you know, re- remembering back to the, when I first spread the wood chips, when I first started getting a lot of volume, like two feet of volume, uh-huh. I think that it did maybe kind of stress the trees out for a couple of weeks. They were like, hey, what's going on with all these wood chips here? But now the bottom foot and a half of wood chips is so <laughs> black and so nutritious. It's great soil, yeah. That the trees are just launching their growth and they're growing very fast and very nice. Amen to that. Yeah. 
So Kari from, she says, greetings from Lake Havasu City, recently retired here and went to want to plant more trees, limited to the current water system for now. We want to remove plants and replace them with fruit trees. Is there any benefit to removing them now? What would be the most beneficial plan toward the goal in the fall? Oh, she wants to wait six months or so to plant her fruit trees. Yeah. Well, you don't want to. So first of all, especially in Arizona, she's in Arizona. You do not want to be planting trees this time of year. And she's in like Havasu, which is like the hottest place in Arizona. Exactly. Exactly. So I'm going to I'm going to actually jump in here and say, yes, remove them now. If you can have them chipped and put back on your land, that's, you know, we were just talking about the wood chips, Kari. So, you know, having them put back in place. But here's one thing that one of the people planting trees last year suggested, Jake, is that you pre-dig your holes. Yes. And then you fill the holes with wood chips so that the wood chips break down into healthy soil over the course of the next six months. You still have to dig the wood chips out of the hole, but what, you're, what you've got in there is life and microorganisms and so on. So that would be my take on it. You know, I totally agree, Greg, and I've done uh, at least two or three videos on my Vegan Athlete YouTube channel uh-huh. about just that, how to dig the hole as if you're going to plant a fruit tree, fill it with the perfect uh, Mesa's mix of soil, which is at my website, jakemace.com, my Mesa's mix soil. Yeah, definitely use that, everybody. And you can fill the hole with that soil and just begin watering the hole like once every 10 days or something as if there's a, there's a tree there, uh-huh. maybe like twice a month. And then when you plant in the fall, just oh. dig the soil out and save it on the side. Uh-huh. Put your fruit tree in. Now all the bugs and the mycelium and the mycorrhiza have already been drawn to that hole, and they will allow yeah. your tree to grow very well from the very first minute it's in the ground. Amen to that, man. Absolutely. Plus, Kari, for deciduous trees, you want to plant them. You want to plant them really in the spring or in the winter when they're dormant. So I wouldn't plant anything in the fall. Uh, you're going to get your best selection of trees if you plant in January. And for anybody in the desert southwest, including Nevada and, you know, Southern California in the desert, if you're interested, you can get trees in our fruit tree program at urbanfarm.org. There's a link in the top corner of the page, and you just uh, jump in, and you can learn all about fruit trees, take classes. We have an event, our fruit tree launch event, which Jake will be speaking at. Are you excited about that, Jake? Oh, man, I love speaking in front of people, and I just love your events, Greg, so that's perfect. Yeah. Cool. So that'll, that'll be coming up in September. So I would highly suggest, Kari, that you go to urbanfarm.org, top left, and there's some uh, educational material there for you that's free that you can jump in and, and learn about. All right. Questions, questions. Oh, this is a great question. Linda says, we just did a brush burn. If we mix the ashes into the soil... Would that be good to grow vegetables and herbs? So this is a bit of a science question, Jake. So I'm going to kind of toss it to you. I I know a fairly good answer, but I want to see what you know about this. Okay, so I am not a scientist. I'm a school of hard knocks kind of – I'm more of an artist than a scientist. You know what I'm Uh saying? Right. People that come over to my yard, they go, hey, Jake, you know, this is like a canvas, and this garden is like your your masterpiece painting. Yeah. I'm like, hey, I kind of like that. So – what I do is I have a nice size fire pit. Anything that's yep. burnable, yeah. I burn in the fire pit when I have friends over or whatever else. You get a ton of ash in there. I save all that ash. Yep. And what I do is I do not mix the ash into my raised bed soil directly, but I put it in my compost tumblers. 
Uh, and so I fill brilliant. my compost tumblers with all my ash yep. and mix it into my food scraps and my, which are nitrogens and my yard clippings, which are carbons. And it just makes a really good uh, mineralized soil. I did read online that when you, when you burn stuff in a fire, as it burns into ash, uh-huh. it changes the molecular structure of what was burning. So it actually releases different minerals that were not there before. Right. So that's why the ash in the bottom is so good for your soil. It's got tons of minerals in it that have been heated to where the plant can now and the mycelium can now uh, eat them and absorb them. Yeah. Well, this is actually something that's sold. It's called potash uh, fertilizer. And it's, you know, it's part of the NPK and I won't dive into that, but the main ingredients in fertilizer. So, uh, Linda, the great thing that Jake just said is he adds it to his compost bin. That's great. And you don't want to add a whole lot in your compost bin or a whole lot in your garden all at once because uh, you can overdo it. You know, ultimately, if you really wanted to dive in and check on that, check that out, you'd want to do a, a soil test and see, you know, how much potash is in your soil, you know, which you can do. But, yeah, using some of it in your garden is absolutely uh, appropriate. You know, Greg, it's really fun to create your own minerals on site. You know, I just love, oh, I I love having the ability to, like, I, I easily put out maybe one-twentieth of the trash my neighbors. Yep. Because when they're throwing everything away, I'm actually using everything back in my landscape, whether it's food scraps, whether it's cardboard, paper towels, right. yeah. pizza boxes. I use it all back in my landscape, whether it's fire pit, whether it's compost, whether it's chicken food. I mean, yeah. The only thing I throw away is like plastic and man-made materials are very few and far between at my place. Right. And I'm, I'm going to actually uh, do a caveat here. When you're using things with ink on them in your yard, you need to make sure that they're soy ink, like newspaper works. Never, never, never use uh, copier paper or copies or things with electronic or it's plasticized ink on those and if you're using that kind of stuff in your garden, you're putting that kind of stuff in your food. So that's a caveat that you never want to do. Cool. So, all right. Meeks Travel doesn't say where they're at, but they said need to know the general fertilizing schedule for most fruit trees and bushes. I have a variety, including grapes, tropicals, guavas, Barbados cherries. Thanks for your help. Meeks Travel, this would be the general fertilizing schedule for the low desert where we're at. And uh, so Jake, you go ahead and share that. And then I can adjust it for people that are in, you know, Minnesota and such. I'll tell you exactly what I do. So you have to, when you want to be a successful gardener, what's happening is in the city, which is where I garden, I garden in the sixth, what is is Phoenix? The fifth or the sixth uh, largest city in the U S fifth, fifth largest now. I think it's the fifth largest. Yeah. So I'm, I'm literally 10 minutes from Phoenix airport from the main airport. So I'm right in the heart of Phoenix. And you have to remember that when you move and flock to the city, you instantly lose your animalistic humanity. (laughs) What I mean mean by that is that you immediately start to become desensitized to your connection with the earth. Uh So you go to work to get money. You take that money to go to the store to buy food. And there's watermelons in the grocery store year round. So you completely lose the connection of what season grows what and what time of year grows what so the minute you start to garden in the city in your front your backyard you regain that connection to planet earth Mm -hmm. it's really important we all garden and so what i do is i try to feel when the seasons change and be in touch with nature even though i'm in the city so feel when is spring transitioning into summer 
Uh When is the winter transitioning into the spring? And try to gauge when that threshold is. And when winter is turning into spring, I fertilize my fruit trees in my garden right then. And when summer is transitioning into fall, I fertilize my trees in my garden then again. So four times a year during the transitional seasonal change Mm. is when I feed my trees and feed my garden. Here's how I feed them. I don't put fertilizer down. I feed them with compost and maybe the chicken manure from my backyard chickens, from my rabbit pellets, from my backyard rabbit. By the way, both of those are components in fertilizers. Sure, sure. Okay, so... I also use worm castings. I use mm-hmm. the azomite rock dust powder that I get from jakemace.com. Mm-hmm. And I also use the wood chips and straw or hay bales. I use it all together. And I'll put three or four handfuls around each fruit tree four times a year during the season change. Perfect. I'm going to eat my words here because I think at jakemace.com, we just discovered an organic uh, fertilizer that we're actually uh, using and giving to our gardening friends that's organic. So there's two things that I sell at jakemates.com. One is a foliar feed that's now 100% organic. Nice. And you can spray it mixed with water on the leaves of your trees. And there's also a fertilizer that's 100% organic that you put in the ground. So go to jakemates.com to the gardening section and check out those two organic fertilizers. I know that you do one too, Greg, an an organic fertilizer at the future. So I would say if you're going to use a fertilizer, make sure it's organic. Yeah, absolutely. So that's, and that's what Marcy's asking. Marcy says, what's your favorite fertilizer? How often to apply it? So that was applying to trees. What about your garden? My garden, I use the Mesa's mix. Whenever my soil cooks down a few inches in the raised, I use raised beds. So when they cook down a few inches, you know how we garden every season, the soil level drops. Right. So I we're adding that, lot, that's, that's from adding lots of organic matter and then it, it breaks down. Exactly. So I fill it back up again with a combination of the azomite rock dust minerals that I have on my website, jakemix.com. I also use worm castings. Mm-hmm. I use compost and I use coconut pith or coconut core, C-O-I-R. And those four ingredients, compost, worm castings, the rock dust and coconut core, kind of like a, maybe like a 25% for each. And I fill it back up again with that mix. And, sure and then I leave the bottom of my raised beds open so that the bugs of the earth can crawl up from the bottom. Right. And if you keep layering your lasagna soil like that over the course of three, four years or longer, you get a living, breathing soil that the bugs and the mycelium help to fertilize for you. Yeah. Perfect. So I actually, I'm checking out jakemace.com right now, and I'm on the front page. Under the gardening tab, there's a selection called gardening store. And you have all kinds of great things in here. I'm looking to see. Uh, because you're going to go to Jake Mace to come and there's 50% of what I do is martial arts. So for the gardeners out there, don't look at me kick anybody. Go <laughs> to the gardening section. Yeah. And there's the seed bank box there, which you can sign up for and get a monthly delivery of seeds for your garden for me every month. Nice. From seedbankbox.com. And then there are some other seeds. There's azomite. And then you'll see the 100% organic uh, foliar food oh, just $10, yeah. and that one bottle will last a normal gardener, you know, six months or longer. Yep. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. And, and then I see also, that you have an eight, 839 in-ground plant food that uh, from Seamus. Yes, but in addition to that, we also sell an organic one that um, I'll make sure that it's at the top of the list when this podcast ends uh, today on the website. Perfect. Fantastic. All right, cool. 
Cool, cool, cool. Marcy also asked, what can you tell me about heat-tolerant lettuces and other typically cool season vegetables? Can they tolerate Kansas summer temperatures? So I can actually speak to that a little bit, and then I'll let you do it, Jake. Yeah, do it. Um, what you're looking for, Marcy, is slow bolt seeds or slow bolt lettuces, slow bolt things that are slow to go to seed. That's go to seed and bolt are the term for the same thing. And so you really want to look for that slow bolt stuff. And I know there's slow bolt lettuces and I've had kale actually in my front yard that lasts, you know, two years. So it goes through a two Wow. So, yeah. You know, I'll just mention some varieties that I find are really heat tolerant for me in Phoenix. And if they're heat tolerant in Phoenix here, they're definitely heat tolerant in Kansas. Yeah. And I would yeah. say the Egyptian spinach. I actually have a $5 oh, bag of right, seeds. Right, exactly. Yeah. That come from my garden at jakemace.com. It'll give you a ton of seeds, and they are the most heat-tolerant spinach I've ever eaten yeah. and grown. Egyptian and they'll grow spinach. six feet tall and six feet wide, and they're amazingly prolific on the leaves and on the seeds. And they're like they're very tender and delicious, even though it's hot. They're not bitter at all. They're actually really good. Right, exactly. And I also grow the perennial tree collard, which you need to get somebody who's already got one and get a pup off the stem from them. I also think that dinosaur kale tends to take the heat pretty well here. In exactly. Yeah, dino, dino kale is so, so good. So you're looking, Marcy, you're looking for the heat tolerant stuff. All right. This is from Chris. He says, I often hear people asking on Facebook gardening groups about how often people water their trees and garden beds. However, I think it is important not only to know how often, but how much water to use. So this is one of those, Chris, this is one of those wild card questions that we cannot answer for you. You have to figure it out on your own. Now, we have some tips on how to figure it out. So, Jake? Yes. Watering is the ultimate art form, I think, for the gardener. Yeah. yeah. And what I tell folks is it depends on so many factors, it's almost impossible to give advice on watering. And that, that becomes, I can give you some standard advice that I'll give, and you guys have to grow on your own because everybody's microclimate, everybody's city, everybody's neighborhood, everybody's home is different. That, that okay, being said, so, I've got a, a good solution for you, but go. Okay, so when you have a child and you have a human child and they're like a little toddler, um, pretty much they, they cannot eat as much as an adult in one sitting. But a little toddler or a baby eats more frequently throughout the, throughout the whole day. Mm -hmm. Okay? So when you plant a new fruit tree or you have new little seeds that are just germinating in your garden, treat them like a toddler. You have to give them water more frequently but less deep. Right. Okay? As the plant begins to grow in your garden and get bigger or as the fruit tree begins to grow season by season, you have to change the watering to water a little less frequently but deeper. So in my raised bed garden, I right now I'm just watering uh, one 10-minute session in the morning and one 10-minute session in the afternoon. Mm. And the afternoon means like 1 o'clock because at 1 right. p.m. here in Phoenix, I want the, the plants that are getting blasted by the sun to drink up all that cool water for 10 minutes and help them to battle the afternoon heat. You're not over spraying them. You're watering them at the ground level. Correct, yes. Yeah. And even in my fruit trees, I use a mushroom bubbler. They call it a bubbler. Yeah. You screw it, and it lets a 360-degree spray of water about six inches off the ground just for the well of the tree. Yeah. 
And then for my fruit trees, since I use so many wood chips, since I have such good spongy soil, you know, I could get away with watering my native trees like never because they're natives. Mm-hmm. I can get away with watering a citrus tree when it's 110 outside, you know, like twice a week. Yeah. I can water my citrus trees in the winter or fall like once a week or once every two weeks. So using wood chips, uh, using parent trees microclimate is going to help you yeah. to use less water. Yeah. Uh, in your raised beds, I would use coconut pith and coconut core instead of peat moss because that's also going to help you to create that spongy soil that conserves more water. So what you gotta do is you gotta plant your garden, use the advice I just gave you, but then you gotta become a good watcher and watch your plants. And if you see signs of them being dehydrated, like curly, crispy leaves, mm-hmm. you're, you're grossly underwatering your stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and here's a really simple tip. Go buy a moisture meter. Oh, okay. $7, a $7 item at the nursery and start playing with that. Because that'll tell you whether it needs water or not. Sure. You know, and uh, here's what I do with the moisture meter. If it's dry, absolutely get water. If it's dry, if it's moist going to dry, I'm going to give them some water. If it's moist going to wet, they don't get any water. And if it's wet, they don't get any water. Uh, that being said, I had an interesting thing happen recently with somebody who was using a moisture meter and they didn't water an avocado for two and a half months, for the last two and a half months, because oh my the moisture gosh. meter said it was uh, it was wet, hmm. and the avocado tree is you know is is on the decline. So yeah, that being said, I'd wonder if the moisture meter is uh, is working properly, and especially in the desert, your trees need at least every two weeks, if every not not ten days, they need a good deep water. And if you guys follow my YouTube videos from Vegan Athlete, you dig the hole the appropriate size, and you use my Mason Mix soil that has nutrition plus drainage, you're going to find that you actually have a hard time overwatering if you have soil that has good drainage. Mm-hmm. That's so, a real important piece. Yeah, if you're if you're if you're planting in a tight hole with just clay, you're going to drown the tree if you overwater it. But if you water with a big hole with well-draining soil. Uh-huh. or a well-draining mix in your raised beds, you can actually water a little more. You'll have healthier trees because the water will drain properly and the roots will be encouraged to grow out of the hole. Plus, your trees won't die of dehydration if you water with drainage in the soil as well as use a lot of mulch on top, a lot of mulch. And when you think you've used enough mulch, use more mulch. And yeah. when you think you've used more mulch, then use a little bit more mulch. <laughs> yeah, that, that is such a good piece of advice. And that's for your gardens and your trees. That's for your garden and your tree. Correct. Yep. All right. So Shelly is a holistic health coach out of Chicago. She says, I just built a four by eight raised bed last summer and filled it with organic soil. Any tips for a newbie who doesn't have much space but would like to learn how to get the most from her garden space? She's in Chicago. You know, you could you could look into go YouTube search uh, what's called you can take your fruit trees and do an and do an they call it an espalier yeah. or an espalier. Mm-hmm. You can train your fruit trees to kind of like be right against the wall, flat, like a like like a vine almost. Beautiful. Yep. Get used to how to plant any kind of vining plant, like passion fruit or grapevines, things that vine up that can climb up your house or up your wall. You can plant things together, like you can plant squash or watermelons at the bottom of your thirstiest fruit tree. That way, the they share the same water. 
you can you can grow beans up your corn. So if you guys plant corn, you can grow beans, climbing beans, right next to the corn stalk to climb the corn up to double up that space. You can also plant trees and fruit trees and plants closer together than you think. Most beginner gardeners think that plants and fruit trees need to be farther apart because they see commercial orchards that have things far apart for tractors and stuff. Right. But I found that the healthiest and most incredible and most well-growing home gardens have everything close together because the plants like to be with their own kind, you know? Ooh, you mean kind of like a food forest? A food forest style, exactly, yep. And then do what's called chop and drop. Always prune your fruit trees when they start growing successfully. Prune them and leave it on the ground. Don't take it somewhere. Yeah. So um, I'd also suggest for you square foot gardening. Uh, check out Mel Bartholomew's books on square foot gardening and the concept of square foot gardening. You know, your four by eight space is 32 square feet, and that's 32 one foot squares to grow something different in. So you can actually grow an amazing amount of food in 48 square feet. That's awesome. And I would say on the same lines as that is, you know, make your soil healthy and nutritious because when the soil is healthy and nutritious, you can get away with a lot more uh, dense planting applications. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, Shall and we also all... plant things that are native, like um, oh, right. edible native bushes because then they'll grow without you even doing anything. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Shelly also asks about composting. She says it's a bit daunting, but like, would like to have a small, non-stinky one on the side of their house. She says their houses are pretty close together. What I'm going to suggest for you is do a worm bin. Hmm. Uh, if, you, if you send me, Shelly, if you send me a note to greg at urbanfarm.org, I will send you a link for a worm bin or worm composting class that we did in January uh, that you can take, and that'll... You know, that'll consume, the worms will consume a lot of your food waste. So that'd be what I would suggest. All right. Any thoughts on that, Jake? Yeah, I find that the more carbon in your compost, the less it will smell and the better it will be. So oh, yes. if your compost is full of too many food scraps, it's going to smell and be ridden with bugs. Mm-hmm. So add, get a friend who's a woodworker and get the wood shavings from his Ooh. or her shop. Nice. And throw those wood shavings in your compost, and that will help neutralize all smell. Yeah, perfect. So Shirley says, this year I planted garlic and shallots back in October, harvested them in May, and in a YouTube all suggested drying them out in the sun for a few days. But their video showed all the stalks that were dry on the ones that were drying, and hers were still green and continued, so she continued to dry them on the patio, in the shade, well, that's probably part of the problem, in the shade. But a few weeks uh, later, the bulbs turned mushy. So, you ever grown shallots or garlic? Yeah, and is she in Arizona? Where is she at? Uh, I didn't say. You know, what I would say is, what I do is, if I put stuff in the sun to dry it, I never just put it directly in the sun. I always cover it with a little shade on top. Ah. So, uh, it's in the dry heat, it's in the heat, but it's not getting, like, sunburn on top. Yeah. Well, with garlic, here's the thing, though. With garlic and shallots and onions, you can actually put them in the sun. Sure. Um, you know, because it sounds to me, if they were in the shade, it sounds to me like they weren't hot enough to actually dry out. Because I've actually had onions uh, on the counter in, you know, in our kitchen. When I grab them, they, you know, they're slimy. So, you know, and that's just inside temperature. So, it's, you know, that would be really important to make sure that you dry them. 
And I would say, you know, I have no problem using my shallots and my garlic raw right out of the garden, too. Right. My friend uh, Dylan Congos, he is the king of growing onions and garlic. And he's in a band called Congos. He grows in Scottsdale. And he uh, and Dylan always harvests his garlic and dries it outside on just patio tables. I see him on his uh, when he posts on his Instagram. Uh-huh. And so I would try it again. If she could try it again and see that if she has a better result the second time, but also don't be afraid to use it right away, raw out of the garden. Yeah, perfect. Perfect. So David says, uh, I watched a video of yours when you cut your peach tree to a stump. That was you and I doing that one day. Yes. Um, so immediately I thought it would apply to citrus, figs, jujube, apples, and pecans. I found out this pruning uh, is detrimental to my canopy. So that kind of pruning makes a short, stubby tree, maybe six feet tall. So you, yeah, you know, and I think that Greg would be the first to say, too, that we we pruned a peach tree because it was a stone fruit, and we were in trying to encourage a bushy, short, urban urban garden style of shape right. and size for that tree. But we would never do that kind of pruning to a citrus tree. Right. Absolutely not to a citrus tree. And, and uh, maybe we need to make a note. We need to make a note on that video. That I think we did mention it in the video. I'll go back and look. But we, we pruned that peach tree one foot above the grass point. No, I think it's more like six inches, but or six inches above the so it means six inches above the grass point. But now that tree is already back to almost six feet tall, doing doing great. I know, isn't that amazing? Yeah, it's amazing. Isn't that amazing? So never do it to uh, citrus. Um, although he's what he's wanting to know is that is our is trees going to recover? He says sure. the jujubes and figs seem fine. You know the citrus. Well, the citrus. I've actually done this to citrus before, so it's not disastrous. Uh, you know, just let it let it bush out, and as long as it's above the graft point, uh, you know your citrus tree should bush out. As for the pecan, you know what? I first of all, pecans are really really hard. In fact, I've gotten to a point we brought pecans in on our fruit tree program for the past two years, and I've decided not to do it anymore because they're so oh, really? so yeah, they're so temperamental. They're so incredibly temperamental, and you know we can lose up to fifty percent of them. Hmm. In the in the trans you know in the in the translocating or the transplanting process, you can lose up to fifty percent of them, and that that's just too much. And and I I will say I have two pecans in my yard. One's a Western Schley, one's a Tejas. Uh huh. And they are they do get huge, but they are slower growers to get to that size. Yeah. So the one that I have right now that's four years in the ground with a twenty dollar bare root tree back in the day, and it was just a stick in the ground. It was yeah. literally pruned down to just a few feet above the grass, and now it's a 20-foot tall tree. So right. they, they they will come back. You you probably just set them back uh, about one year with that severe pruning. But mm-hmm. the citrus trees, they want to they kind of bush out and be kind of a ball shape so they can shade their trunk. Yeah. So don't hack the citrus down. Just keep the citrus pruned on the tips, Right. in my opinion. So, yeah, and I, I completely agree with you that on that. And the fact that he's done this. So what I would absolutely do is make sure that you have nice shade, you know, at least 50% shade cloth over the trees, uh, over the top and on the west side of the trees. And, you know, with a pecan, will it, you know, will it get a central leader again? It should. It should absolutely get a central leader. And, you know, when it shows up, you let it grow. Mm-hmm. You know. You know, one thing about, about pruning, I also prune all my fruit trees during the changing of the seasons, you know, and 
I always feel like pruning my fruit trees is something when I first began planting them, I did not want to do because I didn't want to kill my little babies. Mm-hmm. And I was so new to gardening. I was like, this tree is just starting to grow. I don't want to prune it. But now I've been gardening pretty intensively for the past seven years in my garden here. And I love pruning because I feel like it means I'm a successful gardener, that my fruit trees have grown uh, large enough where I can prune the heck out of them encourage a better shape with more fruit and better growth and happier trees like a haircut and use all their leaves and their branches down below as mulch. So I, uh-huh. I think of pruning as a kind of a graduation of me through the school of hard knocks gardening school. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. So this is from Robin on growing tomatoes. She says she's having some issues growing tomatoes. She loves them. She puts them in, them on almost in any ground. She doesn't have any favorites. She just grows them all. But she almost always has problem. The bottom is black. I'm sure. I'm I'm assuming that you're talking about tomato end rot, birds, squirrels, and some other loving creatures. Love you know in the middle of the night. What can we do about all that? What are your thoughts on that? You know, I had that when I first began gardening. Even this year, I found it on one plant out of a hundred that I planted. A hundred tomato plants. Mm-hmm. Actually, probably about, I would say, uh, 70 tomato plants. And the one thing I noticed is that when I started putting more coconut core and coconut pith in my soil, it helped with that because the coconut pith and the coconut core is, doesn't have much nutrition to it, but it's a sponge. It helps retain proper right. moisture levels in the soil. And when you can retain a consistent uh, moisture level in your soil, that helps eliminate that tomato end rot. Yeah. Well, plus, plus on the tomato end rot, it's a shortage of calcium. So one of the things that I do when I plant tomatoes is I take a banana peel and I put it in the hole, and I take some uh, crushed up eggshells and put them in the hole. That's for potassium out of the tomato and calcium out of the eggshells, and that helps a lot. So those are some home garden hacks for that. Also, if you have uh, alfalfa hay anywhere around, you can add that to the bottom of the hole as well. So that'll bring some nitrogen into it. You know, Greg, I've seen you do that, and that's a great idea. Yeah. It's, you know, we're just getting stuff from home, right? Exactly. Yeah. All right. Let's see here. Oh, this is a good question. Ryan lives in the Chicago area. He's in Zone 5. He wants to grow goji berries. Tips on growing goji berries. So, first of all, let me let me take the first stab at this one, Jake. First of all, goji berries are more desert-like in nature. They're you know they're not desert plants, but they like the hot, the heater, the heat. So you're gonna you know want to find a warmer microclimate in your yard. You're gonna want to find a, a space in your yard that is warmer than your other spaces. So find a warmer microclimate for it. What are your thoughts on that, Jake? You know, I found that there are several different kind of varieties of the goji berry style of plant with the edible red berries on it. There's wolfberry, there's goji berry. My friend Justin with agroscaping, he's growing a really cool variety that stays pretty evergreen year-round. But what I'm noticing is that my wolfberries and my goji berries, the leaves come and go throughout the year. Uh Uh-huh. But the plants are very drought tolerant. They love the heat and they produce, each plant produces hundreds and hundreds of berries every single year. So I think it's a great plant. Right. If you're in the Phoenix area, plant goji berry and then wolfberry, and you'll be really happy. Nice. So some thoughts, some concluding thoughts here, Mr. Jake. You know, I want people to try to beat me in gardening. I want people to try to grow more fruit trees in their yard than, than mine. 
Uh-huh. I want you to try to grow more successful raised beds than mine and try to produce a large volume of food at home. If you just love gardening because you love being out in the sun with the dirt and the plants, you know, that's great. But if you can do that at the same time and grow, like if at least one complete meal can be from your garden every day, you're going to find that your health improves, your longevity improves, you need to make less money because you have the produce at home already. Mm-hmm. And some people would be inspired to garden and don't just garden, you know, because it's something you do egotistically, but garden because your goal is to produce a large volume of food and then share your photos and your videos of your garden on my Facebook gardening group, the Urban Gardening in Arizona, Jake Mace group. And mm-hmm. we've got like 21,000 people. They're all sharing and it's great to see everybody's garden and get inspired together. Nice. Have a great day. I'm gonna. We're gonna sign off, Jake. Thanks for being here, and I'll go figure out what happened to the technology. Hey, I'm looking forward to uh, hearing everybody's questions next month. And again, please, if you guys can take the link to this askjakeandgreg.com. We're gonna call it a podcast, Greg. We call it a podcast. Yeah, I guess it's sure. And share it on your Facebook. Share it on your Instagram story. Share it anywhere you can. Get, get the word out there about our our podcast that tries to teach and inspire folks to garden more at home. So once again, thank you so much for being here tonight. Have a great one. As I always like to say, farm out. Do you want to save money at the grocery store? Eat more organic, whole foods? Cultivate food security and feel more connected to the earth? If so, then growing your own food is a no-brainer. You wouldn't believe how many people come to me claiming that they can't grow their own food. They think they don't have enough space, that they're too busy, or that they simply don't have what it takes. Perhaps you've fallen for one of these gardening myths. If you think you can't grow food, or if you think the only food that you have access to is what you buy in the grocery store, I have a life-changing webinar that you need to see. It's free and will help you unearth your inner gardener. I've helped thousands of people just like you learn to grow their own food, and I'm speaking from my own experience when I say that with the right knowledge in place, There is no such thing as a black thumb. With this webinar, you can begin making your garden dreams come true and start growing delicious, nutritious food for your family. Just text GARDEN to 44222 or go to IWantToGarden.com and you will receive our free webinar about the seven key factors you need to know to grow your own food. Remember, that's GARDEN to 44222 or I want to garden.com. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids 
to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.